online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. G'day, welcome to a shorter version of The Country Hour today on the radio up until 1230 Then the coverage of the first cricket test starts and we'll be on the digital platform from 12.30 to 1. Now, coming up before 12.30, we'll check the weather and hear the latest from the livestock markets with Richard Bailey, especially about the big fall in the price of mutton. There were 1,330 mutton, which is 750 more than last week. And this market was just in general terms back 50 to $60 ahead. Which means that in probably a space of about three weeks, the mutton jobs come back around about 70 to $80 a head. Yeah, more on the livestock markets coming up for you shortly. First up today, let's check the latest on the weather with Matthew Thomas from the Bureau. G'day, Matthew. G'day, Tony. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, thank you. Rainfall uh, figures, have we got any of note for the state? Look, um, rainfall to 9am was largely around the west of the, the state um, and, you know, generally less than um, five millimetres um, there. And since 9am, we've um, just seen some more showers push into the west and, um, and, and picking up a little bit. So already up to four millimetres at um, um, North Boomerang in the Picton. OK. Now, the outlook, Matthew, what are we expecting over the next few days? Look, we've got a weak cold front that'll brush the um, the west and south of the state today. Um, just run up the um, the east coast into the um, the evening. Um, we'll see some showers about the west and the far south, but generally less than um, five millimetres. So about the the Huon um, and and probably the um, the Upper Derwent Valley, um, we'll see sort of up to two millimetres. But um, they're probably the the main populated areas that um, will be impacted by the um, the precipitation. Now that trough as it runs up the east coast into the evening we'll just see some light showers possible um, along the east coast late but less than a millimetre in those showers. Um, into tomorrow we'll see quickly see a ridge of high pressure build over the, the south of Tasmania. Some light showers about the, the west, south and the east, mainly coastal or about um, adjacent ranges um, and, and generally less than um, less than two millimetres in those. We'll also see that just trough just linger about the northeast and we'll see um, some showers about the northeast um, around two to five millimetres. Um, and those showers um, will um, extend onto the eastern plateau and then um, through the northern midlands um, during the afternoon. Um, into Friday, um, the high pressure system will move to the east and um, more of a warmer northerly stream will move over the state. We'll see some showers about the north um, as, a, as that northerly stream develops, um, mainly about the elevated um, ground, um, so up, up against the western tiers and, and really zero to two millimetres, not terribly much in it. Um, a fine and sunny day on Saturday and warming up quite nicely, getting to about 25 degrees, about much of the, the north and, um, and 27 to 28 down in the, the south of the state. So that's really the, the pick of the days if you're after um, an outdoor um, day. Um, but on Sunday, we'll see um, a trough extend down from the um, the northwest over the, the north of the state and just a weak front um, just sort of brush the, the south of the state late. So um, sort of a, a state in two halves with um, with some warmer conditions um, continuing about the, the north of the state on um, on Sunday um, and some, some cooler conditions just pushing into the, the south, still maintaining about the low 20s um, around Hobart, but some showers beginning to develop. Now, the most um, significant days are really Monday and Tuesday because on that trough of um, low pressure 
extending um, into northern Tasmania. We'll see a low pressure system develop on Monday and that will approach Tasmania. Now, there's a bit of uncertainty as to exactly whether um, the heavier rainfall will be through Monday and Tuesday, but um, just to anticipate there could potentially be um, 30 to, to 50 millimetres um, um, on the coasts um, where it um, happens to set up. Okay. Uh, warnings, what have we got? Um, so with the ridge of high pressure approaching today, um, we've really only got a strong wind warning for southern coastal waters from Tasman Island to low Rocky Point for today. But um, as that ridge moves over the state tomorrow, we have no warnings. Okay. And briefly, the coastal waters and swell. Okay, west to northwesterly winds 15 to 25 knots um, today, tending west to southwesterly during the afternoon as that um, front moves through and decreasing to 10 to 20 knots um, later. But the winds reaching up to 30 knots about the south during the um, the early afternoon into tomorrow. South to southwesterly winds 5 to 15 knots, reaching 20 knots about the south early in the morning and about the northwest in the afternoon and evening. With inshore afternoon sea breezes about the east and the north, with the swell around the west and the south, west to southwesterly of um, of four to five metres today and tomorrow, about the north or westerly below one metre and about the east a southern, sorry, south to southwesterly one to two metres but reaching three to four metres offshore in the south. Wave Rider Boy at Cape Sorrell is currently sitting on a significant wave of four metres, a maximum wave of six metres and a 14 second period um, and the Wave Rider Boy at Mariah Island is sitting on a um, maximum wave of 1.1 metres. Um, uh, sorry, a significant wave of 1.1 metres, a maximum wave of 1.8 metres and a 14-second period. Beauty, thank you for that, Matthew. No worries. Have a great day. You too. Matthew Thomas from the Bureau. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now you may remember we spoke to Simon Donoff from Hillwood Berries recently to hear about his new app for monitoring worker productivity as a response to the new Horticulture Award for Fruit Pickers. It's part of what he said. It's purely a, a, an app that we've built that's in-house that we're able to monitor the workers through the day and how many trays they're picking in terms of kilos per hour and that allows us to then make decisions whether we need to bring more people into a field, whether we need to performance manage or improve some of the workforce that are struggling to get up to speed. That's berry grower Simon Donoff. Our reporter Madeline Rojan got in touch with National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, Daniel Walton, to hear his thoughts on the app and how the new minimum wage requirements are going overall. We've got two lots of feedback. One from industry having to complain that they now have to pay workers minimum rate of pay. It's been unfolding. A number of employers have made some dramatic changes um, across the board, but I think, as is inevitably the case of this industry, it takes compliance is not its strongest suit. So generally, have, have workers been pleased with the new award? Yeah, I think so. By and large, I mean, there's some who, when the changes have come through, you know, they've got unilaterally changed from piece rates to an hourly rate and employers haven't properly consulted with them and uh, they try to blame us for abolishing piece rates where clearly that was not the case and still applied piece rates. There's been some confusion from um, being spread through from employers to workers. So it's not been an all absolutely sort of perfect, seamless implementation, but by and large, the, the best thing has been materially it is so much easier to be able to assist workers and for workers to have an understanding whether or not they're getting paid the rate to pay for each and every hour that they work. And under the last system, it was gained, it was complicated, it was tricky, and it was done in a way to drive down wages. And so we're happy that we're starting to see some positive updates and positive uplifts. There are quite a lot of workers who 
maybe wouldn't be able to pick to that hourly rate. Have have you considered how they may be affected if perhaps people like grey nomads or um, other people who just enjoyed going to get some extra cash for fuel or whatever it may be? Has, has that come up in your thoughts? Workers uh, in every form of work or at least get paid, should be getting paid a minimum rate of pay. And what we pointed out in our case and our evidence is that under this peace rate system, it was being used not as an incentive, but a way of gaming and undercutting people getting a basic rate of pay. So the peace rate scheme can still exist. Workers still can be paid a, an incentive, but it's meant to be a premium on top of a minimum rate of pay. So every worker can work on a the farm. They can still work and continue to get peace rates but it can't be as a mechanism to undercut people on the legal minimum rate of pay. And as, as we've been hearing, businesses and growers have been left to think about how this affects their business model. And one grower that we visited has actually developed an app where they can monitor worker productivity. Great. That sounds like a great initiative um, being led by industry and certainly encourage more people to do similar things. And this is the, the reality is we've had all sorts of feedback from the industry, some good, some bad, some indifferent. The good ones have said, well, this is an opportunity, given they've been doing the right thing for a period of time to make sure that everyone has to operate to the same level and makes it easier. That's a good outcome. It also means for employers that part of this is making sure you've got a workforce that's trained, developed and productive. I mean, that has always been the case and should remain the case forevermore. That is making sure that workers can hopefully harvest and earn as much as they possibly can on a weekly rate. We strongly encourage that. What we don't encourage is some of the employers have started complaining that now even some new workers coming into the industry who aren't as productive as some of the more experienced seasonal workers, that they still have to pay them a minimum rate of pay, that somehow that is an outrageous proposition. And have you had any other reports of farmers doing things like this or what has the general response been? Yeah, I mean, I think there's not so much app-based work, but obviously people have been more engaging with their workforce to be able to uh, have proper mechanisms in place to track productivity in hours. That is, how do you have a consistent peace rate scheme that rewards workers for working harder, picking and harvesting more? How do you help train and develop your workforce to be more efficient? Um, and how do you track every hour they work? There's a lot of farmers that have made dramatic moves to improve all of those areas, which is a really welcome change. I think it's a good outcome and a really positive outcome. So I think, you know, if you look back in history, you know, the outcome of the peace rate case means that more workers will be getting their legal minimum entitlements and that more workers will be trained and developed to be more productive on our nation's farms. So it's a good outcome for our farmers and it's a good outcome for the workers. And on that, are there any winners in terms of pickers or are there any losers in your, in your opinion? No, I think the uh, the winners here are the workers who can get guaranteed a minimum rate of pay for each and every hour that they work and can earn more on peace rates if the farm still wants to put it in place. It's a win for the good farmers who have been doing the right thing, making sure that workers get paid uh, properly. It's a bad outcome for all those shonks who decided to try and gain the system to undercut a, what is already a very low minimum rate of pay for workers in the farming industry to try and cut that to bump up their profits at the expense of hard-working farm workers around the country. It's National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, Daniel Walton, on how the changes to the Horticulture Award for Fruit Pickers and Farm Workers are going. Talking there to Madeline Rojan. And more of that story with details of the app online at ABC Rural. 
Well, it takes around 10 years to get a new variety of pasture to the market. It's painstakingly slow. When breeders are happy with their selections, they need to produce enough seed to build up commercial volumes. That's where plant breeder Eric Hall is at with a bunch of legumes he's developed for local conditions. The work I'm doing with Upper Murray now is focused mainly on legumes, both annual and perennial. So we're looking to fill, I guess, some of the niche gaps that we see in the market for deep-rooted perennials that can tolerate, you know, the changeable climatic conditions that we're experiencing. So can handle dry summers, but can also handle what we're seeing now, waterlogged winters and springs. And this year has been particularly wet through winter, spring, Although if you look at the, the long-term averages, we're probably on average, but it really only started raining in July. But some of our legumes that we would see fitting on, say, a north-facing slope down the Dirt Valley, where they can, we've seen them survive 200 mils in a year, they've actually been sitting underwater here for probably two, two months of the year. How are they holding up? And we are, one in particular, Caucasian clover, actually two in particular, Talish clover and Caucasian clover, have um, survived surprisingly well, almost no ill effects whatsoever. Whereas some of the, I guess, more sensitive plants like your lucerns have pretty well died out due to the, due to the waterlogging. So. And will you continue on with the, that selection to, to bulk up seed or...? Has it changed your mindset? Uh, absolutely. We're going as fast as we can. Uh, plant breeding is like watching a turtle walk, I guess. It's slow motion, but, you know, because 10 years to get a variety, but we're at a stage now where the variety has been pretty well developed, so the cultivar is there. Our next step is to start bulking up the seed, which... Um, You've seen today we ha we're having issues with, with background contamination of things like white clover, balanza, you know, ground that we thought was free of white clover. Once you start irrigating in the summer, the dormant seed has popped its head up and gone yay, and now you know we've, we've got a real real problem finding ground that doesn't have these, I guess, seed banks in the ground that are going to create problems for seed crops like this. Yeah. I should breed white clover, then no one would know the difference. <laughs> well, it's very walking through that paddock. It's very hard to tell with the naked eye, uh, oh, someone yeah. who's not a plant breeder. But you can well, tell. Yeah, talish clover. To me, there is a clear difference, but to the average person, they wouldn't know what the difference. You know, they wouldn't say there's a, a problem. But uh, I know. And at this stage, get contamination at this stage of the process. You know, we're probably three generations away from commercial seed. It just multiplies and multiplies. And, you know, if we're selling Talish clover, we want it to be Talish clover because it's got a specific place. You know, it's a deep-rooted perennial. It'll grow where white clover won't grow. And it's probably the only perennial clover that will, you, would, you would grow with an annual, so sub-clover. So what goes into the process then to ensure that seed is completely pure and clean? Is it a manual thing to, to pick out the wrong ones? Uh, it is in the early stages, but once you get to sort of half hectare, one hectare seed blocks, you're really looking for clean ground that doesn't have that contamination. 
I mean, the, with the introduction of irrigation down through the Midlands, I'm sure there's the properties there that have uh, ground that hasn't grown white clover before. Subclover is not such a problem because there's a seed size difference, so it can be cleaned out when it goes through the cleans. But uh, at the moment, like I mentioned, it's a plant breeder's nightmare when you see a, your wonderful variety getting competed against by just the background white clover. What's next for you after this baby's released into the market? Oh, I've got lots of babies coming through, uh, as I said, but looking at both annuals and perennials. Um, I guess one thing a seed breeder has to do is look into the future to see what's, you know, what, what conditions might be like in the future. And I've been talking to a few farmers now about that, and I, you know, one of the things issues I'm, I can see coming is uh, salinity, with increased salinity with all the irrigation going in down through the Midlands. So I'm already starting to look at some of the most salt tolerant clovers that are, that are in the, I guess, growing in the world. I've got one that we didn't see today called Moroccan clover, which is from Morocco. Um, now 30% of Morocco's agricultural land is saline. And this is one where I think it will fit into, you know, looking down the track into areas where salinity starts becoming a problem. It's plant breeder Eric Hall chatting to Larissa Smith about the new legumes he's developed specifically for the Tasmanian conditions. Take a while to uh, develop, don't they? And then they're going to get the seeds up to speed so that uh, farmers can put them in the ground. Well, we'll be crossing to the cricket, the start of the first test coming up shortly, a pre-match uh, report on what's happening from 12.30, about seven minutes from now in the meantime. Let's check the interesting livestock markets with Richard Bailey. How are you going, Richard? Yeah, going well, Tony. Going well. Another day in paradise. Yeah. Let's hopefully hope for more of that sunshine, eh? <laughs> yeah. Still talking about that at the yards? Yeah, um... I reckon driving down the highway yesterday, sort of going past Native Point and Earlston and those places, I reckon the grass just looked a little bit better, a little bit deeper green yesterday. Talking to a couple of people, and you know, obviously the season's late and it's going to go to head pretty early, but from a grazing point of view, I think they're in very good shape. A little bit concerned as to what sort of hay cuts they'll get, but, you know, like it's way better than being the other way. Yeah, exactly. All right, now the cattle market at Powerana. How was it yesterday? Well, as opposed to our big numbers last Thursday, we had very small numbers yesterday. There were no yearlings. Um, the grown steers um, were pretty average, just generally speaking. There were two or three decent ones, but there were some pretty average ones as well. They made anywhere from 314 to 388 cents a kilo. The best of the grown heifers made up to 402 cents. And then just a few cows, the, best, the only one exporter in the market yesterday, probably because of just the low numbers, I reckon. The better cows made anywhere from 302 to 310 cents a kilo, uh, which is back 30-odd cents on last week. But that's sort of been a bit of a trend in the state, that cow market's coming back. The uh, medium-weight cows topped to 334 cents. That cow would have gone to the butcher shop. And just a few bulls, uh, they're only pretty average bulls, no very heavy bulls. Uh, they made anywhere from 230 to $240 cents a kilo. Last day of November, we've got a store cattle sale next month. Uh, yep, it's early. It's in on the 8th, so it's only two weeks away. 
Um, won't be the numbers of last week. Um, probably having a bit of a guess at the moment, around about a thousand cattle, I reckon. Just um, if people are thinking of selling cattle at the moment, please get hold of your agent because it makes it a lot easier if they know what's coming. But uh, that's sort of where we're at there. Okay. Now, I don't know how to describe the lamb market yesterday, but um, I'll let you do that. What happened? Well, that wasn't as bad as the mutton market. We're expecting the mutton market to to uh, take a fair hit. Let's just start with the new season's lambs. The vast majority of these were very small uh, store lambs. Um, the the best new season's lambs to go to the butchers made anywhere from one seventy to one hundred and ninety dollars a head, which are pretty, which is pretty good, you know. But there weren't a lot of them, but they sold well. Then the next run down went to restockers, the sort of the the tradey weight lambs, anywhere from one hundred and thirty eight to one hundred and forty dollars. Light trade one hundred and ten to one hundred and twenty four, and then these little lambs made anywhere from twenty two to sixty eight dollars a head to average forty five dollars. Now I think. Um, they were very small, and I think probably the vendors would have been okay with that. I mean, um, they are straight off their mothers, and they're probably only about eight weeks old, I reckon, or around about that. So they've probably done all right there. It's a um, long time since I've heard you mention $22 in lambs in the, in the one breath. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, over in the old lamb section, it was a different story. It was almost in free fall, um, 30 to $50 a head cheaper across the board. Um, you know, when we've got to this stage in the year, you don't have much restock of competition on these lambs. So it was, we're really down to probably only one really serious buyer. Um, and the best of the lambs topped at $130. Trade lambs, 86 to 120 and light trade anywhere from 60 to $101 a head. And as I said, they were back anywhere from 35 to $55 a head. But then we got over into the mutton yard, and there were 1,330 mutton, which is 750 more than last week. And this market was just in general terms back 50 to $60 a head, which means that in probably a space of about three weeks, the mutton jobs come back around about... 70 to 80 dollars a head which is a you know a long way now to put this in perspective i don't reckon and i haven't gone back on records but it'd be many years since we've seen mutton at these levels and it's purely because the exporters are all telling me they just can't move it at the other end and so obviously if you can't move it at the other end you don't want a lot of um, expensive mutton lying around in terms of, uh, of prices, um, the top prices were paid by restockers for weathers in, that had wool. Uh, they paid 85 to $95 for those. But then when we got into the processing sheep, um, the heavy sheep made 55 to $66. Medium weights, 44 to $64 a head. And then restockers bought light sheep from 14 to $39 a head. A lot of those sheep, um, a lot of them are struggling to make 250 cents a kilo dress weight, which is um, coming back from sort of, I don't know, halfway, I don't know, probably three months ago we were probably sitting at 600 cents. So it's a fair little, fair little haircut. Yeah, it feels like we're in 2012. Yeah, I don't know when it was, but it was, it was many years ago, I can tell you, since I've quoted mutton at uh, those sort of prices. And... Um, I suppose that the dangerous thing is, from now on, we'll see. Although the season's very good, we know we'll we'll see some cold for age sheep coming onto the market, and it's a matter of where they get placed. It's probably a good opportunity. It's probably the right time, though, if you are a producer with 
with sheep to sell, really to stay in touch with your agent because your agent will know who's buying and who's not buying and they'll be able to help you out there. So it's pretty important that. Just uh, Tony, on one other thing, there is an Oatland sheep and lamb sale on the 15th uh, of December. Uh, once again, not sure on numbers there. It won't be as big as a January sale, but there will be some decent numbers of certainly store lambs at that sale. Okay, and we'll find out what's going on on the mainland when we talk to you Friday. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, certainly will. Richard uh, will be back with us on Friday. He'll check the mainland markets. It'll be very interesting to see what happens to the prices by then. Richard described it as a haircut, more like a shave. A big drop in the mutton market, 70 to $80 a head in the last couple of months. Okay, still a half an hour of rural stories coming up on the Country Hour, but only on the digital platforms on your Listen app, on Channel 25 on the TV and the World Wide Web. It's that time of the year when the Test Cricket arrives. So for all local radio listeners, let's take you to the Grandstand Studio to take in the action of the first cricket test of the new season between Australia and the West Indies. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And for the digital platforms, welcome to listeners for the second half of today's Country Hour. Coming up, a Tasmanian fisher decides to retire, but not from the seas totally. Also a look at the big almond industry in the United States and an unexpected visitor to the harvest of canola. First up, Dave Charlie Kiley is retiring after 40 years in one of the most dangerous professions in the country, crayfishing off the west coast of Tasmania. He's lost a number of friends and mentors to crayboat wrecks over the years, but there have also been countless moments of wild beauty and the sheer exhilaration of working in huge swells. Reporter Rick Eaves climbed aboard the Erin Kay in Strawn's Pretty Mill Bay to chat with Dave, who was packing her up ready for the new owner. I'm Charlie Kiley. David Kiley's my real name. I've been fishing since 1981 out of Strawn. It was just a big adventure at the start, and, but been doing it ever since. Always based in Strawn, we, we turned up here when we were, I think I was five. My mum was a bush nurse. Spent our early years here. Mum always swore and declared we'll never ever be fishermen. It was a different era back then. There were big personalities, the fishermen. It would have been more dangerous. Yes, it would have been. They, they didn't have the advantages now that we have, predicting the weather and all those sorts of things. They were certainly a really hardy bunch. Blokes like Roy Nichols, Charlie Bosworth, Larry Markey, Malcolm Hart. I did a trip with Bobby Patton after I finished year 10 and I swore and declared, no, I'm never ever going to be a fisherman. Unfortunately, Bobby um, and his crew were lost at Granville Harbour in the late 80s, I think it was. The thing about fishing is you only make a mistake once. You make it too many times, it'll catch up with you. So I I learnt that through the years. Very peaceful in Mill Bay in Strawn here today. It's absolutely plate glass. We're sitting on the Erin Kay. You won't be sitting on the Erin Kay for much longer. No, I'm retiring. It's been 40 years. And every day of work's a massive adventure. And that's the thing. And the beauty of fishing, even when we worked really hard, we were only at sea for, say, 90, 100 days a year. 260 days a year that you were home with your family, we were the kids. Most of us heading off to work, more concerned with potential for tedium of the office. When you set off as a cray fisherman on that daily adventure, are there times when that's daunting too? Like you just don't really feel like confronting the risk of it someday? Yeah, there's there's been plenty of times when you don't really want to go to sea. 
years ago, you know, people used to work off the four-day forecast chart that used to come out in the paper, but the only thing... A day later. Come on, a day later. Yeah, there's plenty of times when you had to force yourself to go to sea. And you're controlled by the weather. I've spoken with cray fishermen. They don't mind bobbing up and down on a four- to five-metre swell. It's just when the wind comes across that as well. Exactly, yeah. So plenty of times when we, we work for you know, five, six metres of swell, which is big. It's like you're in a bloody elevator all day going up and down, up and down. And it's quite awesome, actually. You've got this power coming in underneath you. But put 20 knots of wind on top of six metres of swell and Nightmare. a little of a mess. Yeah. yeah. I remember once we were at um, the Conicals, Arberg Bay, and we had our gears set. The weather came in really fast. The swell made quickly and southwesterly 25, 30 knots. I had a crew on board called Basil Abel. We just about had all our gear on board and there was one pot. I thought, yeah, I reckon I can get that. Snuck in to try and get it and Basil was on the deck. I was in the wheelhouse and I looked up in front of me and I could see this big wave coming and it was green. Usually when they're green, it means they're going to break. I said to Baz, hang on, Baz. And he turned his back to it. He's hanging on to the line basket and this wave cracked right over the top of us. And I ducked my head, naturally, in behind the wheel. And when I ducked my head back up again, thank God Baz was still there. And uh, we had no windows left in the wheelhouse. The wheelhouse door would have got blown out with all the water coming in. The thing that I noticed, all the water streaming off the pots and my dog, was running up on top of the pots. Her name was Amy. And I'm worried for Amy at the moment. <laughs> she was running up the bow of the boat right next to the anchor winch, so I thought, well, she's right, she can stay there. Well, we'll still handle the predicament, you know, big sea on and no windows. The bilge alarms were going off, electronics were all gone, and we had to get out into deep water. Does this mean charging up the face of other big waves? Oh, yeah, yeah. Getting a little bit of air off the yeah, top? Yeah, there, there was plenty of those. You know, we finally got off the conicals about a mile out and we turned for Sandy Cape and then we got hit by another big wave side on. When all the water cleared and I looked up the bow and I thought, oh, no, I can't see my dog. She's gone over. So we started steaming around. It was a hell of a sea on, trying to find this black dog. Called Amy. Called Amy in the water. I'm worried and, for Amy again. Yes, and, and we were steaming around. We couldn't find her. We were steaming around for about 20 minutes, and, and I thought, well, there's no way in the world we're going to find her in this mess. Anyway, we started steaming for Sandy Cape again, got out on deck and started tidying things up, and I was moving one of the pots, and there was my dog curled up in one of the pots. When that happened, the beach was, that was early 90s. She was built in 1916, so she was an old boat. Hewan Pine? Hewan Pine, yep. Finally got off her in 98 when I bought this boat. George Abelanza here in Strawn. Actually on a, a voyage today, isn't she? She's gone up the Gordon River, yes. A guy called Johnny Fee wasn't as lucky as us and he got wiped out by a big wave and lost his life and the life of his crew, Michael Cadby. John and I fished alongside each other for a, a few years. Yeah, John, he was lost in 97. I was laying down the bottom side of the conicals and John went into a place called the Pophole and the swell just made really, really fast. John was stuck in the Pophole and he couldn't get out. So I got all my gear steamed home. There was no wind, it was just a big swell. A day or so before, Bullymore was tipped over. That would have been the same swell that, that came up here. Anyway, John finally got out, waved to my sea to get his gear. So he steamed out off the conicals, laid on what we call a Morris anchor, which is a really long rope with an anchor on the end of it. And during the night, where the rope comes up onto the boat, it frayed and broke. And he slowly 
drifted in and got caught on a shallow rock that doesn't break unless there's you know, six or seven metres of swell, got turned over there. His son survived. Peter? Yeah, Peter. Yeah, Peter Tommy said he and his dad, when the boat turned over, they, um, they managed to get out. They were hanging onto a gas bottle. Now, Peter tells me story. His, his dad just let go of the gas bottle, hypothermia got him, and um, just drifted away. By then, people were, were looking, and they found Peter. Picked up by another boat, by Wayne Rawlings on the Eastern Star, who unfortunately, six months later, he was um, wiped out himself in the same area. Arberg Bay, the Conical Rocks. There were three, it was Wayne Rawlings and his two crew that were lost. There's, there's been tragedies on the coast, and it does make you wonder about going to sea. Given that that's the, you know, your workplace, where things like that can happen, what was it like for you over the years with your family? They obviously were, would have been worried. They, they never really um, voiced it too much. But, yeah, after John went, it really hit home to people around Storm, just... Uh, just how how dangerous it can be out there. There was one time when I was I was coming home and my wife knew I was coming home and uh, we got hit by a wave just south of Cape Sorrel. They wiped my radio out and they call you up the factories and and they couldn't get hold of me. So I ended up getting in the seaplane up to find out where I was and the families. Yeah, it certainly would would have been hard on them. I fell into fishing. I'm an okay fisherman, but I, I work hard at it. The good fishermen like that I know, like old Malcolm Hart and Mick Stacey and the ones that are really top they, they've got that hunter instinct. They've just got something else. But for me, once you threw those lines off at the wharf and you head out to sea, you were God, you know. There's no one looking over your shoulder you know, for, the, for that freedom. Day really kicks off when you pass through Hell's Gates. Yeah. You do another four-metre swell. You spend a week or ten days at sea and there's nothing better than coming home, you know. Coming up that harbour and families here on the wharf to meet you. And My favourite place to fish is uh, High Rocky Wanderer. A couple of safe anchorages, reasonably safe anchorages. I mean, there's no... Safe, safe anchorage except for Macquarie Harbour or Port Davy. I used to love working Troll Harbour. You'd be sitting out there and you'd be looking in on uh, Mount Heapscoop, Mount Zion, and you think, geez, this is where Abel Tasman first sighted Tassie, you know, sort of, sort of imagining that. Yeah, imagine that. And how's Amy, the Houdini dog? have to say dry land is feeling pretty good to me at the moment, but according to Rick Eves, Charlie Kiley is planning to get himself a pleasure boat and get straight back on the water in retirement. A bit more Gordon River, though, instead of low rocky point, where it uh, gets pretty rough out in the middle there. Great story. And uh, Rick Eaves, the, uh, the journalist there with that uh, particular tale. We're going to talk almonds now on the Country Hour. And uh, as we know, a lot of almonds are grown in Victoria. But the United States grows 80% of the world's almonds. In California, there's 7,600 growers and 100 processing companies. While the industry in Australia is significantly smaller, the two countries work closely together on market access, production research and varietal development. The Almond Board of California CEO and President Richard Waycott says Californian growers are also facing some significant challenges at the moment. I've been in the industry for 20 years and I'd say that hands down this is the most difficult uh, last 12 months we've had in the industry on all sorts of levels. Many of the same things that you're uh, encountering here in Australia with uh, cost of crop inputs, um, difficulty with logistics, uh, and other things affecting the industry. But uh, low pricing and higher costs is never a good combination, and that's been affecting our industry quite severely for the last couple of years. So you do have uh, some growers that are making the decision to 
either push out an orchard earlier than they might, um, waiting for uh, better precipitation patterns to return since we're in the middle of a three-year drought at the moment. Uh, and others, I think, that are looking further into the future with the groundwater um, uh, regulations that are going to be implemented. If they're in an area where they rely a lot on groundwater and they know they're not going to be able to pump as much as they have in the past, then they might be also making decisions to push out their orchards and, and pursue other alternatives for their land or just wait until they can understand better what the future holds. So. There, there is some of that going on. We don't have any firm numbers on it, but uh, whenever we have a drought cycle, especially if there's lower pricing, you'll see the more marginal uh, areas of the state um, have some of that activity. What's it like being in Australia at the moment, knowing that our rivers and dams are at capacity and that we're almost at the stage where we've got too much water here? Well, we're very envious. <laughs> and I think uh, we uh, realize both uh, in California as well as in Australia that we go through these cycles and uh, we have to be able to understand the science of the horticulture and how best to manage through the drought cycles uh, that we know we're going to experience. It's a Mediterranean climate and that's, that's a, a characteristic of that type of climate. Despite the challenges that you've had for the past three years, the Californian almond crop is still continuing to grow. How is that possible if you're having such tough times? Well, so we had, um, in the last two years, our two largest crops ever, uh, and that came off of a more acreage increase and just some perfect weather and having adequate enough water to get through those two years. Uh, this year, our crop's down significantly from uh, those two bumper crops, and I think we're seeing more of the impact now on lower yields because of deficit irrigation and, and probably fewer crop inputs uh, being put on the crop, nitrogen and other uh, crop uh, fertilizers, uh, by example, and that's dropping the yields also. So I think we'll see the effects, more of the effects this year, next year, and so on, of, of um, those difficult times uh, having an impact, uh, whereas we were coming out of better times that, that allowed those uh, bumper crops to occur. 85% of the almond crop in California goes through one port, and that's at Oakland in San Francisco. What kind of impact did that have during the coronavirus pandemic when it was already logistically challenging to, to ship products around the world? Well, it was devastating. Um, we export 70% of our crop, so uh, being reliant on all of that, or 85% of it, going through one port that is not the most important port in California. Los Angeles and Long Beach in the south are much more important in terms of container traffic. And so uh, a lot of the shipping lines just decided not to call Oakland, or they called it less frequently, uh, or they did not allow sufficient time for our growers or our handlers or processors to get containers to be able to get them to the port on time. Uh, just all sorts of logistical issues involved with that. So it's been very difficult. And we can, we can go to Long Beach or L.A. It's just a lot more expensive, and it's not the traditional sort of delivery and then return that you have from Oakland. And then really, other than that, you have to go to the Gulf states. You've got to go to Texas or even to the East Coast to be able to ship out. So uh, we really are working very hard on alternatives and working with the government and with the ports and with the shipping lines to try and ensure better service in the future. Are there stockpiles from previous seasons still in California as a result of the problems you've been having with shipping? Yeah, so when I talk about the industry's woes at the moment, I 
park uh, a large uh, degree of, of the reason for that in the logistical area because we have global demand that's pretty fantastic <laughs> that's been developed over the years. Uh, we had these two bumper crops uh, and we're able to ship those and market those uh, uh, very well. So it's really been this last 12 months or 18 months maybe now where the logistics caused this big backload of, of, of inventory in California uh, that's the 2021 crop basically that uh, meant that coming into the 2022 harvest, we had the largest inventory we've ever had. And so it's getting that marketed, shipped, um, and, and be able to get into the new crop that's the, the issue right now. Uh, so yeah, it's been unprecedented the amount of inventory we've had uh, in California from one crop year to the next. Does it mean you're looking at new markets or just encouraging your existing markets to take more crop pending ships being available? What's, what's your, your plan of attack? Yeah, so both. I think uh, because it's not really a market problem, it's more a logistics problem. It's not that we don't have enough demand in our, the markets we have developed necessarily, but we are always looking at new markets. And uh, I was just in Brazil very recently where we're looking to expand our, our marketing operations there. So uh, I think in the future, both Australia and the U.S., uh, we need to be looking at uh, developing more marginal markets because the sort of huge markets that either were easier to develop or we've spent the time developing, those are pretty much uh, already established or getting there. Whereas uh, some of the other markets, for instance, Australia, looking at Indonesia and Southeast Asia, it's going to take a lot of work to develop those markets. They're not necessarily traditional almond markets. Uh, and for us, uh, we look more maybe at North Africa or or some of the Middle East as, as areas for expansion. The Varroa mite incursion in Australia has been a huge issue this year. There's been a huge desire to eradicate the pest. It's something that Americans have been living with for decades. What do you make of how that's played out here? Well, I'm not an expert of what's gone on in, in, in Australia. I, it's it's uh, unfortunate that Varroa finally arrived, but I suppose it's somewhat inevitable. Uh, and yeah, we've been, uh, the Almond Board of California, outside of the government, has spent more on bee health research than any other institution. And we found ways to live with it. We found ways to mitigate it. Uh, most of our very professional beekeepers, uh, and probably like Australia, you get a lot of independent beekeepers that uh, may not be uh, taking advantage of the best bee management uh, techniques and, and, um, and technology. But those that can, we see that their overwinter losses are very manageable. And we're coming up with new, uh, new processing or new, new management techniques. For instance, overwintering in uh, refrigerated space uh, for, for beehives that uh, really control the varroa development uh, to a great degree is, is something that we're implementing now. And a lot of professional beekeepers are now practicing that. So I think uh, it's, just, it's just finding a way to use the best technology and management techniques to, uh, to manage it and, and live with it. Interesting discussion there. The Almond Board of California's CEO and also its president, Richard Waycott, speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth. He was in Australia for an almond conference talking about almonds and the world market and uh, where Australia and America sit. Across to WA now on a pastoralist in West Australia's Midwest says the only reason she still has sheep is thanks to the help of some Maramar guard dogs. Gemma Cripps is at Gabion Station, about 500 kilometres north of Perth. 
She says a few years ago they had such a big problem with wild dogs, they almost got rid of all their sheep. But that's when they recruited some Marima dogs, the ones that have been used for thousands of years by Italian farmers to protect their sheep from the wolves. Gabion's definitely a sheep station we would like it to be and has been forever really. Um, But in the past probably seven years, the dingoes have become a really big, big problem and we were losing a lot of our sheep to dingo attacks. So, yeah, I love my dogs. So I thought the marimas could be a a good fit. So you started in 2020. How many did you start out with? In um, September 2020, I had four pups sent over. There was two males and two females and we had an adult pair come over from over east. So we started with the six but um, we didn't realise that the adult female that came over was actually in pup. So she had 10 puppies not long after arriving. So that was a big shock and that was the beginning of a very quick learning curve. (laughs) That was a bonus, wasn't it? How many sheep were they protecting at that stage? Um, at that stage, they were we had 620 sheep with the Maremmas then. Now, you have since gone through lambing data before and after having those Maremmas. What was the comparison? Well, the big driver was in 2020. We started off with 830 sheep in a paddock and we only got those 620 ewes back. And from those 620 ewes, we had 17 lambs for the year. So we've been going backwards for many years, but that was the worst result we'd had. So that was 2020 prior to the dogs. And then um, 21, the pups were only eight weeks old when they came over in September. And we did all the bonding from September through to April. And then in April, they went out for their first big adventure. And that's when lambing began in the proper lambing paddocks. And it was the same paddock that we'd lost the sheep the year before. And we still lost 5% of the ewes, but we ended up with a lambing rate of 65%. Before you got the maremmas, just getting basically no lambs off your ewes, were you at the point where you just thought, I can't have sheep anymore? Yeah, 100%. We um we ended up with cattle here on adjustment in 2019 and in 20 when... The lambing was just so poor, we actually agreed to buy the cattle that were here on adjustment because we thought we were just going to give up. It was just too hard and too heartbreaking, Mm. knowing that you're losing that number of animals to something that you can't control is just devastating. So we had sort of given ourselves into becoming a cattle station. So with that increase in lambing percentage, I think you said it was 65% and you lost 5% of your ewes with the maremmas in the paddock. Does that give you the confidence to stick with the sheep and expand your sheep? It certainly does. Um, It's a bit of a funny time at the moment to be considering buying more sheep with the risks that we've got in agriculture at the moment. But um, mum and I have sort of decided that 500 you know 600 sheep at the moment isn't a viable number to run as a flock so um, confident enough that the maremmas are having a pretty good crack so yeah we're looking at buying in some more sheep just to help that breeding herd grow a little bit quicker. Now you mentioned the bonding that you do between the maremmas and your stock you've got a bunch of maremmas and some uh, goats that are about the similar size to them running around what does that bonding process involve? 
Yeah, so they're the cuties at the moment for sure. We have eight puppies in with three little goats. The pups were born on the 23rd of March and we found the goats in the paddock mismothered during the April school holidays. So they're a similar age, but the goats are probably, would you say, maybe 10 kilos and the puppies are already 30 kilos. <laughs> but it's just a... Um, from eight weeks old, the puppies had been introduced to those little goats and have been living together. So basically whatever you introduce the puppies to when they're very small is what they think is their their job. So it's just letting them know that they have to protect them and that's what they have to stay with. So at the moment, I don't know if the goats sink their dogs or if the dogs sink <laughs> their goats. So come September, we'll bring the sheep in and do the weaning for the year and the new pups will spend probably four weeks I would say in a small holding paddock just getting used to their new flock of sheep and then um, there's already nine adult dogs running in that paddock so from hopefully November, December onwards they'll go out to the new paddock and that'll be their job. And what will their life then involve? Yeah they just basically wander around the paddock. Um, our reason for having so many maremmas is that because the paddocks are so big you want some of the dogs to stay with the sheep and you want some of the dogs to be actually walking the boundary of that paddock chasing, you know, to put the pressure on the dingoes. We're still not sure yet whether they actually sort of fight with the dingoes or whether they just help to displace them. So it doesn't really matter what the answer is there, just as long as that they're not with the sheep. And we've been able to sort of track some of the sheep and the dogs to prove that they're definitely there's a they stay with the sheep for most of the time but it's just at night time they'll go off and do a little bit of hunting to move predators on so yeah it's very cool and they live with the sheep they eat out of the feed stations near the waters they drink out of the sheep trough so basically their whole life is with the sheep what happens if you want to bring the sheep in or change paddocks how do you go about mustering them that can be a little bit tricky um we definitely try not to have too much interaction between our kelpies and the maremmas in just general day-to-day -day life but the maremmas because we've handled them so much when they are puppies now they do realize that when i come into the paddock that it's something that they can allow so generally for the first part of mustering for the probably first half hour the maremmas are very cautious about what we're doing but then after that we can start to introduce the kelpies and just use the kelpies in the normal way for mustering so yeah it works well. And it's interesting too you're obviously feeling confident enough that this is working to invest in more sheep so that'll be the the ultimate test won't it we saw a, a dead sheep yesterday that had been uh, taken by a dog is it an ongoing battle on the rest of the property? Yep, definitely. Um, the dog, the dog attacks are certainly the dingo attacks are definitely still happening, but it's just to a level now that we can sort of justify. Unfortunately, that's a a normal thing on part of a farm is what your you know ongoing death rate is, and that can be from many things. So because of the amount of losses we were previously having, we believe that the losses that we are having now are sort of at an acceptable rate so that we can put our money where our mouth is and invest a little bit further. Well, Gemma, good luck. Good to talk to you today. Thank you very much. The amazing story. Uh, that's Grazia Gemma Cripps at Gabion Station in WA speaking to Joe Prendergast about uh, the dogs that protect the sheep, the maremma. It's amazing, isn't it? Some dogs want to 
hurt the sheep, other dogs will guard them. And if you'd like to read Joe's online story, just search ABC Rural and Marema for the uh, story about the Marema dogs. Well, finally, on today's Country Hour, and by the way, tomorrow and Friday, Country Hour will be as normal uh, from midday till one o'clock, and then we'll cross to the cricket at uh, WA at one o'clock after the Country Hour. So the Country Hour as normal tomorrow and Friday um, with the Test Match going on. Now, you can see some truly weird stuff show up in the crop when you're out harvesting, but I reckon this story takes the cake Brad Walder was in a header out harvesting canola near Warne on the Victorian Mallee when a shadow passed overhead. Yeah, I can see you thinking UFO. But as he told reporter Luke Radford, it wasn't a bird, it wasn't a plane, it wasn't a superman, but rather an off-course hang glider. Uh, well, I was just, I was, I was just, yeah, chewing away there, doing some standing canola. She's not real easy, um, easy going this year. So yeah, so I just. Just plugging away, and I looked out to my side, and I'm like, geez, that's a big shadow. That must be a big bird up in the sky. And then all of a sudden, this hang glider just comes straight over the top of me and just landed in the paddock right in front of me. And then, um, yeah, he obviously knew that we weren't going to slow down or we couldn't slow down, so then I seen him scurrying out of the crop and onto the harvested stuff, and, yeah, he just sat there waiting like a wounded eagle for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Is it, I mean, has anything like this happened to you before? What a ridiculous question, but, like, come on. Nah, nah, I've, ne- I've never seen anything like it. And it's good because this year everyone sort of hopes it down and, yeah, there's not a lot of bloody stuff going on. So things like this, if you can send them viral and get a bit of a laugh out of it, it's real good. So did you, did you get a chance to chat to him or did he scurry off before you got that? Nah, he sort of got out of the way because I don't think, I think it was in one of those spots where you can't park there. We'll harvest him. So, yeah, we couldn't really stop and have a chat. But, yeah, he, he soon got someone to come pick him up about oh, half an hour, 40 minutes later. Well, it, 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 it looked like he kind of dropped between you and the, the harvester that was in front of you as well. So it looks like he had a little bit of clear space. Do you think that was um, uh, like intended or he just kind of plop, plopped down there by accident? Well, I reckon he's landed on the stuff that wasn't harvested because landing on harvested uh, canola stubble isn't real pleasant. So I think he's seen a softer cushioning in the uh, in the unharvested stuff, so that's where he sent it down in there. Well, it was pretty. It looked like it was pretty high canola as well, because he was when he crashed down. I mean, you could see the the hang glider itself sitting on top, but he was kind of buried buried in the crop itself. Yeah, well, the crop was probably nearly two meters tall, so all I could see was like this big triangle thing in a little white helmet head walking across the crop as he got out, and then seeing there was a human. And yeah, I got to ask, you know, long days in the header. Did you think you were saying things? Nah, she wasn't late in the day, late enough in the day for that, mate. Nah. <laughs> so is it, I mean, is it a big hang gliding area? I mean, is is this a? Do you see them around the place a lot in the area? Because I must admit, I don't think I've ever seen a, a hang glider actually out in the wild. Well, I have seen. I've seen them on the way to the paddock here, but they were probably I don't know five k away from here. So I guess hang gliding, you don't have really much choice in where you land, as I well seen. Yes, header operator Brad Walder from Central Victoria speaking there to Luke Radford about the wayward hang glider who crashed in the canola crop he was harvesting. Ending the country hour for today. Catch you after midday tomorrow.